let us rise and go to Jesus. So let's go to his word. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy, uh, we are going to be in chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you right in the front. Uh, you should find a Bible. We're going to be on page 934 uh, today. Today we're going to talk about more church dynamics uh, and the flourishing of the household of God. We're going to talk about pastoral dynamics this morning. But here's what we know. As church leadership goes, so goes the church. Uh, really, there's an incredible connection. Uh, church leadership and a healthy, vital church, are they're, they're intrinsically linked. The dynamic between a pastor, the elders, and the church is so incredibly important. For the church to flourish or the church will flounder, depending on the dynamics of the elders, the pastor, and the church. And this is so important for us. Believe it or not, as we continue in our series, today is part 13. I'm hoping for lucky 13. I don't believe in luck, but in a sermon series called for the flourishing of the household of God. We've been looking through this amazing book. It's 1 Timothy. It's one of uh, the 66 books of the Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul. It's called the Pastoral Epistle, meaning that it was written to a young pastor named Timothy. Uh, he happened to be in Ephesus at the time. So a lot of the New Testament letters or churches or, or, or scripture is written specifically to a church like Corinth and Corinthians or, or the Galatians or whatever. But this is a pastoral epistle. But this is so important for King's Chapel at a time like this. Because of all the books of the Bible, this is really like an owner's manual for the church, for the household of God, for the church of the living God, as it says in 1 Timothy 3. So incredible. So many years ago, when Paul was writing to Timothy and he was in Ephesus, there was important stuff that he had to know. But because Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit and was actually writing scripture, it's important for us here at King's Chapel some 2,000 years later. This is God's holy word. It'll never lead us astray. So we as a church, because this is Christ's church, he owns it. Uh, we really want to function in a manner that's worthy of his name. We don't want to just do what we feel is right. God's given us this manual. He's given us this book that will really help us navigate uh, through the church. We covered a lot of territory so far. Again, this is week 13, if you can believe it. Uh, we have some more. We're going to actually finish up in the end of September. But when we've looked at this, we say, hey, for the church to be properly run, we need God's word. But more than just that, more than just the way we run, we have a mission. God has called us for a reason. And for the world to be thoroughly won, we got to make sure we're living according to the word. This is so important. What have we learned? We've learned that we need sound doctrine. We need a great foundation. We need to be standing on God's word. And we, we got to make sure that unapologetically we are doing it. And in times like these, more than ever, it's always you need sound doctrine. But we need sound doctrine. We don't need to be tossed back and forth by what the latest thought is. What is God's word saying? Let's dig deep into sound doctrine. But with that, we also need abounding grace. I love the reality. It's not just a solid foundation. That could make us edgy. We want to be loving and winsome. We got to be reminded, like Paul will say, I'm the chief of sinners. We all need God's amazing grace to make us like Christ Jesus. So we need abounding grace. We need to make sure we're fighting a good fight. We realize that churches oftentimes fight each other. They fight different denominations. 
We often are, spend way too much time and resources and energy on fighting each other or the wrong things. We've got to be fighting the right fight, the right fight for the glory of our great God and the good of our neighbor to make sure we're ambassadors for him. We also realize we have to have primacy of prayer. We've got to have a church that's, it's, that has a prayer as its root uh, of praying church, and not just the leaders, but all of us. And again, a prayer life is so important. We've looked at some things that are, that are not easy culturally. We've tried to understand biblical gender roles when it comes to worship. And what does God say about the role of men and women, both co-heirs in Christ, both made in God's image? And, and what does that look like for us? We also need to realize we need godly leadership. God has given us uh, in his word through Paul and Timothy some qualifications for things like elders and things like deacons and deaconesses. But we need more than just godly leaders. We need a godly church. The godliness needs to be a part of who we are through the preaching of God's word. God's church needs men and women who are deeply devoted to truth and to gospel. And last week we talked about healthy church dynamics. How do we relate to one another? How do we honor the widows and those of different ages? How do we make sure that we honor God the way we love one another? Well, we've gotten to the point today where some more real practical stuff, and it's for everybody, and the timing of this is perfect. I'll tell you why in a few moments. But we need healthy pastoral dynamics. And remember, the church and this leadership, how the leadership goes, so goes the church. So we're going to be looking at a few things today. We've already looked at qualifications for officers. This is going to be more like nuts and bolts roles. So we're going to see the role of elders. We're going to see honoring of elders, the disciplining of elders, the ruling of elders, and the ordaining of elders. It's all going to come to us from 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to that passage. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant word. Paul writes to Timothy saying this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Some of you will love this next verse. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not uh, that are not cannot remain hidden. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how amazingly practical First Timothy is. And God, we thank you that your spirit had empowered Paul to write your words. And so that it was not just applicable for Timothy and the church of Ephesus so many years ago, 
but right here and right now for King's Chapel, right here and right now for everyone who's sitting in this congregation or watching uh, online, God, you have a word for us because your word is a living and active word. So come and speak. Speak, Lord Jesus. Oh God, speak through a broken vessel like me. God, would you give us ears to hear your voice? And would you give us minds to understand your word? And would you give us hearts that would embrace your truth? And would you give us feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name? And Father God, the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion, may those things fall away and be forgotten. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, would you use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior, the head of the church, Christ Jesus. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. So as we've been making our way through 1 Timothy, we realize in the, in the chapter 3, uh, Paul will tell us that, hey, if anybody aspires to the office of elder, if anybody desires to be a leader in the church, it's a noble thing. It's awesome. God's Spirit's working on your, your heart. And so if you're aspiring to leadership, that is a very noble thing. But it'll also say not everybody's qualified to be an elder, to be a leader of the church. As a matter of fact, God will give us in his word, uh, Paul will write to Timothy, say, here are, here are some qualifications that, that elders and deacons and deaconesses must have. And he's going to be listing those. And specifically for the elders, it's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'm telling you, it's a high order. I mean, as an elder and a pastor of the church, you read that and said, you should be above reproach. I mean, you should make sure that you're not addicted to too much wine. Uh, you make sure that, that you're living your life in a way of integrity without any handles. And so we realize that Paul gives this in, in really pretty extensive list of qualifications for an elder. Um, and you realize that not everybody's qualified. Interestingly, in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 7, the, the word that Paul uses to describe this, this elder or this office is overseer. The Greek word is episkopos, where you get the Episcopal church from. Um, but the word that he is using here is the word presbyteros, where the Presbyterian church will come from. But if you look through Scripture, the pretty interesting thing, especially through the book of Acts, and when you talk about certain leaders, God's word is going to interchange the word overseer. It's going to change it with the word elder. Sometimes they'll even use the word shepherd or pastor. They're all the same thing. Uh, they all are, are that office that God has called to elders. So with this passage, you might want to start asking, are there two types of elders? Are there one? Because we, we, we realize that an elder should be able to do two things. He should rule and he should teach. Already we've seen that a difference between a deacon and an elder is an elder should be able to teach, teach God's word. So King's Chapel, I know as we move forward, uh, what kind of elders will we have? Well, we will have elders from the congregation that uh, men who will have uh, been raised up by God who will help lead us. But you also have a pastor, you have a teaching uh, elder. You'll have somebody who has a full-time vocation, who's been trained uh, to do this. So what are the roles of our elders? In verse 17, it gives us two specific roles. And again, I love that there's a the fact of these roles of one is ruling and one is teaching and preaching. So some churches and denominations say, well, these two roles will really indicate there's two types 
of elders. They interpret this as there are two types of elders. There's ruling elders. Now, those are folks, laymen, uh, who have been ordained to this office. And there are teaching elders. Even John Calvin, a hero of the Reformation, uh, one of the greatest church leaders, really thought that this verse indicated there were two types of rulers of elders, the ruling ones, well again, not full-time vocational pastors, and the teaching ones. But we don't know for sure. But we know what he's calling us to. Ruling. What is an elder supposed to do? He's supposed to be a spiritual manager of God's household. He doesn't own it. Christ does. He works for Jesus. Uh, he's supposed to do it in a certain way, but a, a elder is to rule. Uh, he is to rule with, and govern uh, in a way that brings glory to God and good to the neighbor. You also have rulers that are preachers and teachers. Interesting with the word here, the word that's translated preaching. Some of you have like maybe the NASB, it might say the word. Uh, the, really, the preaching comes from the word logos which is a more broader term than just preaching. It's the word. You are in charge of the word, and you're in charge of teaching. I like the translation, preaching and teaching. So elders should be preaching God's word, teaching God's word. And by, by the way, the only way you can preach and teach God's word is to marinate in God's word. Uh, make sure that you are a part of a church where the, the preacher, the teachers, uh, they're soaking in it. They're marinating it. They're studying it. They're, they're, they, they're looking at commentaries. They're trying to figure out what others have said about this um, so that we can make sure that we teach in a way that's honoring uh, to our, our great God. But not only that, that the teaching the full-time, usually vocational pastors, um, there's shepherding. God has called for the elders to, uh, to shepherd his people. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter verse 5 says to the elders, listen, shepherd the people and don't do it reluctantly do it cheerfully i know that sheep have a proneness to wander and they can smell and they can be irritating but listen i've called you to an office shepherd god's people basically you have this you are spiritual managers of god's household ruling you're feeding god's household you're preaching and teaching and you're caring for god's household you are shepherding that's the role of elders and then it says in this passage there's the honoring of elders. We're going to spend a lot of time on this one. Just kidding. I thought there'd be a little, little bit of joke there. It says that, that honor, uh, the, the elders who rule well, um, teaching and preaching, they, they are worthy of double honor. Interestingly, what does double honor mean? Double pay? Well, uh, probably means double honor in two things. An elder, a pastor, is, is worthy if they're doing it well, of respect and remuneration. Respect and remuneration, maybe remuneration is a word you don't use much, it's like an honorarium, pay, okay? So it's an elder is, is, is uh, with double honor, respect them and give them remuneration. First thing is respect. Elders, pastors should be respected. They have a hard job. Um, the writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. Wow. So here leaders have been raised up to overlook your souls and one day give an account. How did you do, Jeff? How did you do shepherding King's Chapel? All right, elders, how did you do? Pointing them to me. Uh, you'll have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. I love that. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we're to enjoy in God's glory to be shepherding and loving and teaching you 
and the response is to respect your, your elders. You know, I, I told Siri, uh, what does Siri call you? Uh, what did you tell Siri was your name? Um, it's the only one that tells me I'm Reverend. I love it. Siri, where are we going? Well, Reverend, I love it. Reverend, Siri is showing me respect, and sometimes I think the only one who does. But anyway, not true. But showing respect to your elders and pastors is really the duty of the sheep, the church. And it says those, especially those who are laboring and preaching and teaching. And the word laboring there, the word used for laboring is to strike a hard blow. It's to grow weary. I mean, laboring and preaching and teaching. It's a burden in many ways. I got to tell you, I believe this is the greatest calling in all of the earth. I love being a pastor. I'm so grateful that God has called me to this role. But it's one of the hardest callings. It's one of the hardest callings uh, as a people pleaser like me. It's one of the hardest callings that standing up every week and making sure that you're giving God's word in a way that's true and accurate. Trying to shepherd God's people and you guys are going in all different directions. Uh, it's, it's not an easy calling, but I'm so grateful. But because of that reality, God's word says honor and double honor. A double honor uh, because why? God has raised them up. Not only with, with respect, but also with remuneration or maybe an honorarium. And I love the way that Paul is going to say this. He's going to quote Moses and Jesus. And if you want to really emphasize a point, especially to an audience like then, quote Moses and quote Jesus. Oh, he first of all quotes Moses. He says, now listen, when it comes to giving them double honor in an honorarium, Remember what Deuteronomy 25, 4 says, and I'm sure you all know that. You've memorized it, right? Uh, it says this, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Now, that's probably an image that none of us can even think about. I mean, I don't know how many farmers there are. I guess there's one. Um, but, but for the most part, what does it mean to muzzle an ox when they're, when they're threshing out the grain? You know, what, what, what is that actually treading out the grain? Well, it's basically saying when the, the ox is going through the grain, uh, and it's shepherding the shaft uh, from the wheat and making sure that you have the good kernels. Don't let it not eat. I know that he's going to be eating some of the prophets, but if you have an ox that's well fed, and if you have an ox that's well cared for, in the long run, it's going to be better for you. So don't muzzle them. Let them eat. Let them eat a little bit of the grain. It's okay. So clearly, God cares more about pastors than oxes. Um, and I think he's just using an example, like in a farming example. But make sure you don't muzzle the pastor. Uh, make sure that, that the elders, that they not, re, not only receive respect, but those who are teaching and preaching will have the remuneration. But then he does something else. He quotes this. The laborer deserves his wages. And most likely, he's quoting Jesus in Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72. Uh, and he says, he says this. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. And don't go from house to house. Let me just hit pause. I know I just said that to you. And when you're a Bible nerd like me, this stuff is awesome. Because you got to realize when 1 Timothy was written, the question was, when was Luke written? And how soon did, did, did Timothy know about Luke? And how can he be quoting Jesus? Is this oral tradition, or is he, is he quoting Scripture? Because it says in this, he quotes Scripture. And isn't it great that Jesus' words are Scripture? As a matter of fact, some of you might see these words in red in your Bible. 
Because it's going to point it back to Jesus' words. Let me also pull it back and remind you that every single word of God's word is God's word. The red ones, the black ones, the in-between ones. The Old Testament and the New Testament. We shouldn't be elevating one word over the other. Let all Scripture speak. But I love the fact that when he's driving home a point, he's going to pull out Moses, like the ultimate prophet of the Old Testament, he's going to pull out Jesus. And that's just an incredible combination. So, honor. Double honor. The second thing is this, disciplining an elder. In verses 19 and 20. He says that we should be slow to accuse or cautious in accusing. And he says, it's really interesting. He says, listen, an accusation against an elder is not even to be entertained if it's not brought by two or three witnesses. Interesting. That somebody with just one, it shouldn't even be entertained until two or three witnesses come forward. And we see this throughout Scripture. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, two or three witnesses are needed to sustain a charge and secure a conviction. True of the Old Testament. It's also true of the New Testament. And what is it saying? It's saying, listen, be very cautious to accuse. I don't usually do this. This is a very rare thing. But I'm going to read to you from a commentary, John Stott, one of my favorite. So instead of telling you about it, I want you to hear his words. And he's going to tell you a little bit about what he believes this says. So will you do me a favor? You lean on on this. This is not time to chuck out. But this is an amazing English pastor, preacher. He's with Jesus now. But listen to what he says. Remember, this is about slow to accuse. This practical regulation is necessary for the protection of pastoral leaders who are vulnerable to slander. None are more exposed to slanders and insults, wrote Calvin, than godly teachers. They may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. For the enemies of the gospel often take vengeance on the ministers of the gospel. A smear campaign can completely ruin a leader's ministry. So Paul's first words to Timothy is that he must never listen to gossip about leaders or even to take a serious accusation if it's made by only one person. Every charge must be endorsed by several responsible people before it is even listened to. Adherence to this biblical principle would have silenced many a malicious tailblayer and saved many pastors from unjust criticism and unnecessary suffering. We live in a time where it's easy to accuse. We live in a time where it's easy to post something and it's easy to accuse without anybody necessarily being able to defend. Painfully true in my life. Slow to accuse. Secondly, bold to rebuke. Not only we should be cautious in accusing, we should be courageous in rebuking. It says, as far as those who persist in sin. And by the way, this is really interesting. Who are those who are persisting in sin? Is it the slanderer? Or is it the elder who's sinning? Okay? So both of them are in sin. But as far as those who persist in sin... Those who maybe are accusing falsely elders or those elders that are messing up. Follow Matthew 18. Follow, and really, so what happens is there should be a public rebuke after a private admonishment. And it said rebuke, rebuke someone in public, rebuke them in the presence of all. If it's a public sin, it should be dealt with publicly. If it's a private sin, it should be dealt with privately. 
Interestingly, Apostle Paul, uh, Peter, like, I mean, Peter is one of the pillars of the church. I mean, Peter is the man, right? So in the book of Galatians, you have Peter showing up, and he starts hanging out with the Gentiles, and they're all like chummy, and they're eating together, and they're like, wow, this is incredible what the gospel has done. At one time, Peter would say, I'd never associate with you. Now in Christ Jesus, you're my brother and sister. And then these people called Judaizers showed up, and they said, no, if you really want to be saved, you need Jesus and you need circumcision. You need Jesus plus Jewish tradition. That's the only way to be saved. And they show up, and Peter starts like becoming more like them. And he, starts, he forgets to hang out with his Gentile friends. And he, he, he basically treats them like secondhand citizens. He, he, he starts saying, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to be over here with the elite Jewish crowd. And Paul, man, he got so ticked. He got so ticked at Peter that he says, went right up to his face and he rebuked him right in front of everybody else. What you're doing is wrong, bro. Christ Jesus died for the Jew and the Gentile. Man, he laid his life. We're brothers in Christ. We are one in Christ. Man, you're wrong. You have separated yourself from believers. Stop it. And with the courage, I mean, Paul, you know, it's interesting. They say that Paul wasn't a very big dude. Uh, they said that he had knobby knees for the way he prayed so long. Uh, and the little pictures we have of him, I, I think he wasn't a very big-statured guy. As a matter of fact, they say, you know, your letters have all these we weight and all this authority. We look at you, you're puny. Who are you? And here you have little puny Paul going up to the fisherman Peter and just saying, man, you're wrong. You see, speak the truth in love. Rebuke boldly if you need to rebuke boldly. Remember, a public sin deserves a public rebuke. Private sin, use private ad admonition, admonishment. But disciplining a pastor and elder should make the church stand in fear. I mean, examine yourselves. Make sure the church is pure. The church has too often not rebuked its leaders and pastors. Is that not true? Do we not have denominations that have covered up things that should never have been covered up? Do we not bear that shame? Of, of, of things that haven't been exposed. Don't cover up their sins or misdeeds, but don't also accuse too quickly. And then you have the ruling, the ruling of elders. Paul, he's going to charge Timothy in verse 21. It says, awesome. I'm going to charge you. This is really strong language. And he's going to throw in like the heavenly host. In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, everybody in heaven, I'm going to charge you. He's like, man, let me just tell you how important this is, man. Jesus is behind me. All the elect angels, which means those who haven't fallen. Um, I got all of heaven's authority. Here's what you're to do. So Paul charges Timothy with the combined authority of heaven. He says, rule. I want you to rule without prejudice. Be fair. Be impartial. Don't jump to conclusions. So important for an elder. And you're, when you're ruling the church, be fair. Be impartial. Rule without partiality. Don't play favorites. Don't be better to the haves than the have-nots. Don't just love the Gators. Love the Seminoles. Don't, don't just love those who vote with you. Vote, love those who don't. You know, this isn't about your political opinion. This isn't about your, your college football affiliation. This isn't about your status in the business marketplace. This is about being fair and honest to all so the flourishing of God's church. Lead in that way. Don't play favorites. And then there's the ordaining of elders. And he's, he's, he says, don't be too hasty of laying on of hands. Now, I know for most of us, like, what the heck does that mean? What does it mean, don't be too hasty of laying on of hands? It's, it's ordaining them. 
It's when, when, when an elder is, is raised up and he's trained, eventually the leaders will come and lay hands on them. They laid hands on Timothy. It was something that's still done in many traditions. The laying on the hands is saying, we are setting apart because we believe God has set apart this leader, uh, and we're going to pray for them. So the church and the pastor should not be hasty to ordain elders. They should be properly vetted. They should be properly trained. Uh, we're in the midst of that right now. Putting someone prematurely in office of an elder has caused great mischief to the bride of Christ. I've seen it myself. Probably been guilty of this myself. Nor take part in the sin of others. So watch this. So don't hastily uh, ordain elders. Why? Because you will be partaking in the sin of others. There is culpability, watch this, there's culpability of pastors and churches who too quickly ordain elders whose scandalous sin leaves a scar on the body of Christ. You should have known better. You should have done your homework. You should have investigated a little bit more. Were they ready? Did you hastily do it? So, take no sin part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. I love this. Timothy, keep yourself pure, pure by not being associated uh, with that hasty ordination and unqualified elders. Avoid guilt by association. And then, what do we do with verse 23? What does your Bible say about verse 23? It's in parentheses, you got all this great stuff. Then he says, oh, by the way, don't just drink water, have a little bit of wine. It helps your stomach. You got all these ailments. What are you doing? I think he's saying, keep yourself pure and keep yourself healthy. Don't just drink water. Drink a little wine, by the way. It says little wine. It says don't go crazy. Have a little wine. But don't be given to too much wine. We know in 3.3. And don't adopt asceticism. This might be saying this because, remember, we've already studied this. There were those who said, if you're really a believer, you're really a follower of Christ, you're going to abstain from marriage. You're going to abstain from maybe alcohol. You're going to abstain from these things so that God will love you more and that you will be more justified before God because of what you avoid. And I'm telling you what, Scripture says, forget it. God has made these good things. Marriage is important. And, and have a glass of good Merlot, man, it's fantastic. But make sure you do it in moderation. All right? And, and maybe it had medicinal reasons for Timothy as well. But I think it's also to say, hey, don't become this religious snob that no one can relate to. And don't try to think that there's a righteousness that you can gain apart from Christ. And I also think that ministry is hard to stomach. <laughs> so have a glass of wine. I got to tell you, I got to confess, I got to be careful because you got to make sure it's a glass of wine. There's been times in my ministry, I, I've come home and I've drank. And there's been times in my ministry, I'm just so undone that I'm going to the liquor cabinet. I think I think of two. And when you're my size, it takes a lot of liquor to feel it. I mean, it's just not worth it. It really is just not worth it. But it's just it's like, God, what am I doing? You know, I'm trying to numb the pain. I'm trying to forget some conversations. And I'm trying to find relief from the world. And I'm not from Jesus. It becomes an idol. It becomes a crutch. and becomes dangerous. And I know, I listen, some of the most gifted men in ministry that I went to seminary with are out of seminary because of addictions. And because of addictions, with, with wine becoming too important to numb the pain. So we got, we got to walk that line where we don't want to be these teetotalers that show that real uh, salvation and righteousness is earned by the fact of what we avoid, that we find that we're righteous in Christ. We got to be careful. 
And I'm not sure I walked that line right, to be honest with you. There's a lot about me that I love being a cool pastor. I love being a cool pastor that can drink a beer with you. I mean, there's something about like, hey, man, I'm going to show up. And, man, and every time I go out, and not only will I drink a beer with you, I can open it with my wedding ring. I mean, it's one of the coolest little gifts you know, going right there. Um, but do I want you to think I'm cool or do I want you to think that Jesus is amazing? So we got to walk that line. we got to do it well. I'm not sure I always do. Um, but keep yourself pure and keep yourself healthy. Now, healthy... All right. <laughs> and then it says, don't be fooled. Not everybody is what it seems. Take a good long look at elder candidates. There's the iceberg effect. You're only seeing the tip of the surface. What's really going on underneath? He's basically saying that, listen, some sinners are disqualified because they're so obvious, man, that's a sinner. Some are not as, some are tricky. You can't really tell. What are they really like? What's their home life like? Are they, are they really loving their wife well? I mean, what, what are they like? Take some time. Don't be too hasty. Because it'll surface. You know, again, as a pastor, let me just tell you, when I, when, when I have the privilege of talking with people that their lives have imploded, and mostly it implodes because of our own sinfulness, and they're, they're trying to look around at the broken pieces of their life, what I would want to remind them in time and in love is that God loves us too much to let sin stay under the surface. It won't. Let me tell you right now, if, if, if you're involved in a secret life, if, if there's something that no one else knows, if you're fighting like crazy to, to hide something, and if you're his, he loves you too much not to have that thing come to the surface. It's coming. And when it does, it's going to be painful. But just know what? that God brings into the light the things we try to hide in the darkness. Why? Because nothing good grows in the dark. And only in the light, in the exposing of the gospel, can we have health. So that's, that's the good news of the gospel. But we got to be, we got to be, don't be fooled. <laughs> don't be fooled. Let's make sure that we dig a little deeper. Some hide their sins better than others. All right, as the church leader goes, so goes the truth. So, so goes the church. King's Chapel, critical time for us. We're now nominating officers and leaders right now. This is so important for us. Is this not like amazingly practical right where we are? Please, would you please pray for me? And would you please pray for the leaders? We got a, we got a board meeting right after church. Why? Because we have big targets on us. We really do. All Christians have a target on them. But I'm telling you, Satan loves to try to take down the leaders. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for the leaders? Please protect me and your leaders. Protect us. How do you do that? Protect your leaders with realistic expectations, right? I mean, I can't solve all your problems. Uh, I'm not going to be available all the time. Um, you know, the expectations that I'm a, don't forget, I am a broken sinner. Those who've heard me preach and know that I, how I preach is I've always tried to say, I'm one of you. I'm a sinner saved by grace. We are in this together, right? Don't put me on a pedestal that I shouldn't be on. Sure, have an honor and a double honor and a respect, but pray for me. But protect your leaders with real expectations and protect your leaders by guarding your words. I love what Stott said. There's a thousand criticisms that a preacher gives. Man, he's too long. He, was, he, was, he wasn't very funny. He was this, he was that. Uh, he, he, probably a lot of it's true. I've been criticized that my socks were too short. I'm not kidding you. I mean, it's crazy what you hear. Um, so guard your words. Um, it'll honor God. It'll honor your pastor and their family. 
May God continue to bless his church. May God ordain leaders who will flourish in Christ Jesus so that Christ's church, the household of the living God, King's Chapel, will flourish. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father God, thanks for such a practical word. And God, I, I gotta say, thanks for such an amazing calling. God, that you choose to use broken, weak vessels. I mean, Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And God, we realize that it's not the strong that you use, it's the weak, it's the needy, it's the broken. It's like that stained glass window behind us that all the broken pieces in the right alignment of Christ with the sun shining through tells a beautiful story. God, we pray for King's Chapel. We pray that, God, we get this right from the beginning, that we would recognize that you are raising up leaders, that, God, you would raise up godly men and women to lead the charge, that, God, you would, you would not let us fall into what our culture is saying is right and wrong, but, God, your church, the household of the living God, the church of the living God would be a pure household for the glory of our great God and for the good of our neighbor. Oh God, in the name of Jesus, would you bless us to be a blessing? Would you protect us from ourselves and from the world? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.